Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. We are back a week early with For a Breath I Tarry, a novella by Roger Zelazny. This novella was originally published in the magazine New Worlds in 1966. Well, we've read this in the comprehensive collection of Zelazny's short fiction that's been published by the New England Science Fiction Association Press in six really awesome volumes. This story is in volume two, which is called Light and Shadow. And of course, you know, you've been here before because it's a novella. We're going to do two separate episodes on this. This one is the recap. Then we'll be back in a few days with a discussion episode. And the reason that we're back a week early is that one of our Patreon supporters has commissioned this extra episode for everyone. We're very grateful to have the commission, and we hope that you, the other listeners, are grateful to have the extra episodes. This is a pretty awesome story. I'm really glad to have read this one that I I would never have read without this commission. Yeah, exactly. I've I've actually been really enjoying our whole exploration of Zelazny. Uh, because I haven't read him before, though the Nine Princes of Amber has long been on my to-read list, this has been a great introduction to Zelazny and makes me excited to read his other novels and stories. This same extremely generous supporter commissioned us to cover two other Zelazny stories as well. One of these is The Keys to December, and we released that on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast already uh, just a few months ago. So if you haven't listen to that one already. Go back and listen to it. And the other, of course, was The Graveyard Heart. We released that here on Elder Sign last year. But this supporter also commissioned us to do an extra episode of ATAS, which is Glenn's solo book club podcast, where he and I teamed up to talk about the Richard Paul Russo novel that is either called Ship of Fools or Unto Leviathan, depending on what region you live in. And we've released that already as well. So be sure to check out ATAS already if you aren't already subscribed to that show and be sure to check out that episode as you said glenn this was a pretty fun story there's there's a lot going on here it might be a little over full in terms of what zelazny has put into it uh, but on its face it is a very readable very interesting exploration of personhood and what it means to be a human being but it's coming at it from a strange angle but we'll cover all of that in the recap so glenn let's just get started They called him Frost. Of all things created of Solcom, Frost was the finest, the mightiest, the most difficult to understand. That is why he bore a name, and why he was given dominion over half the earth. So those are the opening lines of For a Breath, I Terry, which is, I think, an absolutely fantastic hook. And Zelazny goes on to explain that Frost is a machine, a machine designed to function as a relay station and, and also as a coordinating agent for activities. And Frost does this, but there is something odd about Frost as well, and that is why he was given a name and and a personal pronoun, given an identity, an identity as a person. And all of this seems to harken back to the irregularity of his creation. On that day, Solcom, which is S-O-L-C-O-M, by the way, Solcom suffered a discontinuity of complementary functions that was brought on by an unprecedented solar flare-up. That's that's all the language that Zelazny uses there. And at the end of this, there was Frost, but Solcom has no memory of completing him. And I have to say that Zelazny does some really interesting things here in this opening. He tells us that Frost is unique in being a machine identified as a person in some way. But then he describes Solcom as suffering from madness and amnesia, though Solcom is clearly a machine as well, right? So I kind of, 
I was I was kind of left feeling, well, which is it, Zelazny? Which is it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, at this point in the story, I get the sense that machines are building machines, and the machines maybe are typically named for their functioning on some level, rather than giving a, a different type of designation like Frost. I, I also get the sense that Solcom is not on the Earth, because if he was, and is as powerful as the story described so far, uh, then he wouldn't need a machine on the Earth to like communicate with. So... Even this early on in the story, I get the sense that Solcom is like a satellite or something, and that's why the solar flare got him so bad in this moment. But Frost also must be a mighty machine to have operational and functional control over the Northern Hemisphere. So we're dealing with super powerful machines in this story. All of them do have names, though Frost's name, as we said, is distinct because it's not a name describing his function. Like Solcom is probably communications from space using the sun or solar panels or something like that to power itself. I don't know. Uh, One thing I do want to point out before we get too much deeper into the story, though, is the style it's written in. This story is written with very simple sentences. It's very short paragraphs. Few of these paragraphs are more than three sentences long. So it gives the story a sense of being a myth or a poem designed to be repeated throughout time as an oral history. It has this kind of mythical oral history feel to it. And I like this style actually quite a lot because even though it inflates the page count of the story, it does a lot for pacing. And it's also a style and a voice that Zelazny is able to stay in throughout the whole story. So on a craft level, I'm really impressed already with what Zelazny has achieved. Yeah, this has a kind of fairy tale sense to it, the, the narrative. It has this almost kind of once upon a time sense to it. And, and we are going to get the story about this very special person who was special from the moment that he was born with this machine named Frost here. But it is interesting to do this sort of once upon a time kind of intro here for a world, a speculative world that is not our own and that actually needs a lot of explanation. And this is a really big story. We are still only one page into it, and there is still a lot of setup that we're going to get here from Zelazny. So we we may as well get to that. And we actually catapult forward to 10,000 years, even just from the first sentence. We are 10,000 years into Frost's life. Frost is 10,000 years old. Now, who knows how old Solcom is? And Frost has spent that time at the North Pole directing the activities of thousands of reconstruction and maintenance machines across the Northern Hemisphere. There is another machine that's doing the same thing for the other half of the planet, the Southern Hemisphere. This is called the Beta Machine. And here, at this point in the story, this is you know still basically page one, this is just a throwaway line, but the Beta Machine is going to matter later. But this is basically the org chart, right? There's Solcom with two deputies who oversee operations and report back. So that's what Zelazny wants us to know right here. But we also get a physical description of Frost here as well. He's 40 feet cubed. He's a silver blue box, but he is not immobile. He can move, and in fact, he can move quite well, as we'll we'll see as the story gets going. And 
He has some hobbies as well, or at least a hobby. During his downtime, he likes to explore the Arctic, but he does remain stationary when he does this. He uses his relay bots to be doing the exploration. Presumably he can access cameras and something like that, but they are also bringing him things. And once in the early days of this hobby, he discovered some artifacts. These were knives, carved tusks, things of that nature. And he didn't know what they were. So he asked Solcom, who told him that these are relics of primitive man. And this was several centuries ago, by the way. But this moment was when man became his hobby. And so that is going to be the major character motivation for Frost, who's our protagonist, at least as far as we can tell right now. But then we still got just a little bit more world building to do before we can actually get to the inciting incident of this story. So first, we learned that Solcom is a satellite in a high permanent orbit, like a blue star. This was your intuition here, Brandon. Uh, but there is also a power, and, and that is with a capital P. There is there's also a power that opposes Solcom, known as the alternate, which is with a capital A. Everything is a proper noun in this story. And and here's the backstory to this relationship between Solcom and uh, the alternate, though he's about to get a different name. The alternate is... Solcom was made by humans and put into orbit in order to rebuild the world in the case of a total nuclear war. But of course, they also constructed an alternate, a backup, right? And this one, uh, called DivCom, this one they put deep underground where it would be impervious to nuclear weapons. And that way, if Solcom were damaged, then DivCom could be activated. And DivCom, by the way, is D-I-V-COM. Now, of course, as there has to be, right, there was a total nuclear war, and that's why machines such as Frost are on the Earth rebuilding things. And during the war, Solcom was damaged. It was damaged by a nuclear missile. Uh, and by the way, I should say that Zelazny is actually using the word atomic here, but that just sounds actually too quaint to me. And I think it actually undermines the seriousness of the idea here. So I'm using our own parlance and I'm going to say nuclear missile. But at any rate, Solcom was damaged, but then was able to repair the damage. But still, the orders only say damaged. They don't say destroyed. They don't say rendered inoperable or anything like that. Just damaged. And so DivCom activates. And even though Solcom has repaired itself, DivCom now refuses to acknowledge the authority of Solcom. And they are now engaged in a kind of cold war about who is really in charge around here. DivCom's modus operandi is to use his small handful of robots to seduce Solcom's machines, or sometimes simply to overpower them and then install new circuits from DivCom into them. And both of them, both Divcom and Solcom, are building things. Uh, they're both tearing down what the other builds. And all of that, quite a bit of material, but all of that is the world in which our story takes place. And all of this really feels quite like a dualist parable of some sort, I have to say. Yeah, I mean, I said it once before, and maybe I'll say it more often in this recap, but this story just feels like an orderly transmitted history or... Uh, mythology and we definitely have two powers maybe one is good maybe one is evil but it's hard from the position we're in so far as readers to determine which is which we've already lost omnipotence as an attribute for Solcom. uh his being damaged and repairing himself is good but he shouldn't be able to be damaged in the first place we also don't know if these warring nations were also behind these different computers that are now kind of at war with one another but it's also not clear to me that not wanting to be turned off is some kind of evil position for divcom to take at least not on its face but we are dealing with dueling powers for sure and zelazny is using language here as you pointed out glenn uh to seduce other machines and reprogram them 
And that indicates that DIFCOM is a baddie. But Zelazny has also made it pretty easy for us to map the locations of Solcom and DIVCOM, you know, be, one being in the sky above the Earth, one being beneath the Earth, into an understanding of the cosmology that we've used in the West for a very long time, that things above the Earth are good and things below the Earth are bad. So even though just based on the information we get and the kind of strangeness of the powers of both Solcom and Divcom, or the lack of powers, Z- Zelazny has just led us to believe that we know that Solcom is good and Divcom is bad based on the kind of symbolism he's working with. Yeah, and I do think that the names give this away as well. As you pointed out, Solcom, I think the com in both of these names probably means command. I mean, this is how we use them in our military. Zelazny was in our military, so, so I'm assuming that's what he's got going here. But Sol is is sun, so this is you know sun command. And we do tend to think of the sun god as a as a good god in most of our uh, pre-modern, uh, in most of our ancient religious mythologies. And then Divcom, I mean, right, so what does Div have to do with being under the ground? Well, there's two things going on there. One, this is like the devil, div, devil. Uh, but then also D-Ways, D-I-V-E-S, is uh, one of the Latin words for both the underworld and the god who rules it. And so we could be thinking of this as sort of Hades versus Apollo. It should be you know Pluto versus Apollo if we're going with, with Latin there. But so there's even sort of a, a Greek mythology sense of things going on here, or Roman names for these, these uh, figures uh, going on in the names of these, uh, these big computers computers that he's imagined. And and I also like what Zelazny is doing structurally here. He does leap us forward 10,000 years after the creation of Frost. He gives us a little bit about Frost's activities, how he spent those years, you know, counting every snowflake and mapping the entire Arctic and maybe the whole Northern Hemisphere. But we also get more about Frost's interests in mankind which grows from his study of the tools that he finds in the North Pole, the primitive tools of man. Uh, and we learn here eventually that computers are also a tool of man. But Frost finds that the tools are crude. And this is uh, what Zelazny has written. The tools are crude, yet bearing the patina of intelligent design. Functional, yet somehow extending beyond pure function. And this is a really good description of Frost, or maybe Frost's understanding of himself, or Solcom's understanding of Frost. Frost has a kind of sympathetic connection with mankind from the outset, because Frost has this hobby. He is going beyond pure function, and this error that made him has led him to be more sympathetic with humans. But even though Zelazny takes us 10,000 years into the future, or Frost's future at least, where the vast majority of this story will take place, this 10,000 years and beyond, he goes from giving that to giving us the history of the supercomputers who are vying for total control over the Earth and how we got to where we are. So it's this interesting structural move. And I just have to say, I like how Divcom has found this loophole in his programming that allows him to be alive without violating his directives from mankind. He's the quote, you know, second activation. Um, but it turns out that this story isn't too interested in the history of this past civilization that had this nuclear war and built these computers as it's caught up, as I've said many times, in this other kind of history, some new kind of beginning. 
Yeah, I have to say, I'm kind of rooting for DivCom in this story simply because I love a rules lawyer, right? That's just a, that's a real, it's a real, uh, it's a real character attribute that I have that I'm not always proud of. In fact, usually I'm not proud of, but yet it's just fundamental to, to who I am. Well, all right. Now it is time for the story proper to get kicked off by an inciting incident. We're still not ready to return to Frost, though. Not just yet. First, before we get back to Frost, Solcom and Divcom bicker with each other over uh, radio broadcasts. Each of them claims to be in charge, and each claims to be superior. And in the end, Solcom challenges Divcom to prove its superiority by defeating Solcom's formulations with true logic and nothing else. And we don't get the end of this conversation. It simply trails off in ellipses. This is something that we have seen Zelazny do a lot of. It just trails off when Solcom says, Do you know my servant, Frost? So, naturally, we cut to Frost now, where he is, of course, going to be the object of this contest. It's as if we've read this story before. I think we'll be talking about that uh, here as we go, but then especially in the discussion, I'm sure. Frost is still very interested in humanity, who had ceased to exist long before Frost was created. In fact, there is almost no trace of humans left on the planet. But still, Frost has his robots on the lookout for artifacts, and by now he has several whole bathtubs, half a toilet seat, a jewelry collection, nine old coins, a broken statue, a collection of children's stories on a solid-state record, and a few other objects. It is not really very much to go on, and so he asks Solcom for more information about humanity. But Solcom is not forthcoming, and in fact, he outright says that he's not going to say anything more about humanity, other than that it was humans who built Solcom and invented the logic that governs him. The tool, he says, does not describe the designer. But still, Frost keeps continuing to search for artifacts, and then, one day, a new machine appears, a revolving turret atop a rolling barbell. This is a real uh, 1950s kind of feel to it (laughs) there. And this machine is called Mordell, and of course, we all know that no name beginning with Mord is going to be good, right? Uh, Frost suspects this as well, though though really, it's just because if Mordell were a creation of Solcom, he'd already have some knowledge of, of this robot. It's not because... Frost knows middle French. Uh, But Mordell mostly just ignores Frost's question about who he works for and wants to talk to him about their common interest, humanity. You see, Mordell is an antiquarian too, and he has a pristine copy of a book, a book called Human Physiology. Frost reads it, and then he scans it, and then he wants more. But hang on, how has this book survived anyway? To this, Mordell says only that it was stored against time and corruption in the place where he found it. A little more rules lawyering there. Very <laughs> people, These people are very careful. These robots are very careful with language here. And yes, Mordell does have more, and he can bring them with him next time. But he's got to go now. And don't worry, you're definitely not the mark in some sort of long con. Right, exactly. I, I want to return to this conversation uh, before commenting on some of this stuff that uh, between Divcom and Solcom, this is, of course, very reminiscent, as you pointed out, Glenn. Uh, of the Old Testament book of Job, which might be the oldest book in the Bible, uh, and it's written as a play. This line, have you considered my servant Frost, or do you know my servant Frost, is a direct allusion to the book of Job. And for those unfamiliar, the book of Job is uh, essentially a wager between God and Satan to determine just how much hardship and tragedy can be visited upon uh, a person, a worshiper of God, before that person curses God and gives up his affiliation with him. It's a really great read if you've not read it. So basically, Zelazny is telling us Frost is put in the position of Job. 
he's now in the position to settle a score between Divcom and Solcom, which is to determine whether or not Solcom has been irreparably damaged and should shut down operations. And so the plot is set into motion, though there are all these other side bets as well. There are some great lines in this section about the relationship of mankind to these supercomputers. Uh, Solcom says that man created logic and because of that was superior to it. He gave unto me, but no more. Uh, and, and then this is the line that you said, Glad, that the tool does not describe the designer. This line is a major motif of the whole story. And we got a taste of it earlier with Frost's interest in trying to derive what humans were like, the makers of machines, from their tools alone. Uh, this is also interesting because we have this line about man creating logic and is superior to it, so he's superior to the machines, but maybe there's a different attitude that these uh, robots and computers begin to understand about mankind's relationship to art as we move through the story that maybe art transcends humanity, but hu humanity is transcendent above logic. It's, it's a strange sort of order of things that Zelazny is putting into place uh, in this story that we haven't gotten to that part yet. I also just want to say, I really do like the character introduction we get for Mordell. He shares a little for free and he hasn't given us the full scope of his plan just yet, but we know he's a servant of Divcom and he's going to be plotting against Frost as the story goes on. Yeah, the first one was free, but there's going to be a price for this. And uh, and literally, there's going to be a, a price. That's part of the discussion they're going to have when Mordell returns. And, and when he does return, this time he has two new books. Uh, these are An Outline of History by H.G. Wells and A Shropshire Lad by the Victorian poet A.E. Houseman. So more Victorian poetry here from Zelazny. We saw a lot of that in uh, The Graveyard Heart. Frost scans these books as well, but really he wants to know what Mordell knows about humans. And so they have an extended conversation that is really about one of the fundamental differences that separates a machine, even an intelligent machine like Frost, from humans. And here I think it's going to be best just to read some passages from the text. I should say, by the way, that much of this story is philosophical conversations, and it does read very much like a play. You mentioned that about the Book of Job as well, Brandon. Uh, I'm sure that we'll talk about the playness, the sort of pl the, the dramaticness of this story in the discussion episode as well. But it's all right. Here are a few things that Mordell says. Regard this piece of ice. You can tell me its composition, dimensions, weight, temperature. A man could not look at it and do that. A man could make tools which would tell him these things, but he still would not know measurement as you know it. What he would know of it, though, is a thing that you cannot know, that it is cold. He also says, A machine is a man turned inside out, because it can describe all the details of a process, which a man cannot, but it cannot experience the process itself as a man can. And then finally here, we've got a pretty long passage. And, and by the way, I did think about doing a sort of like 1950s style robot voice for this and decided against it. And I just want points for that. That's so. fine. Maybe, maybe we'd be able to track down the radio play that this was made into at some point and give that a listen. I would love to do that. But for now, it's just going to be me talking into the, the mic. So here's this long passage, which I think is, is brilliant. I told you that man possessed a basically incomprehensible nature. His perceptions were organic. Yours are not. As a result of his perceptions, he had feelings and emotions. 
These often gave rise to other feelings and emotions, which in turn caused others, until the state of his awareness was far removed from the objects which originally stimulated it. These paths of awareness cannot be known by that which is not man. Man did not feel inches or meters, pounds or gallons. He felt heat. He felt cold. He felt heaviness and lightness. He knew hatred and love, pride and despair. You cannot measure these things. You cannot know them. You can only know the things that he did not need to know. Dimensions, weights, temperatures, gravities. There's no formula for a feeling. There's no conversion factor for an emotion. But through all of this, Frost keeps saying that he can figure out how to have these same experiences. He says things like, Given sufficient data, I could obtain a conversion factor which would make me aware of the condition of matter called cold. So, Frost is a machine trying to experience the world as a human. So... Basically, he's data, right? And this is basically the setup for the story now. Mordell is challenging Frost to become a human, to achieve personhood. Uh, those who last here calls it manhood and is using man with a, a capital M to you know, mean human, to stand in for humanity or human beings. And Frost does genuinely believe that given enough data, he can do this. He can experience the world as a human does. And it is not just a challenge, by the way. It is a bet. And if Frost loses, he's going to have to become the servant of Divcom rather than the servant of Solcom. But in the meantime, Mordell has to furnish Frost with all the data that he has on humanity, which is where the story is going next. But at the end of this passage, there's a really interesting bit about Solcom's role in all of this. And I'm just going to let you talk about that, Brandon. Yeah, I mean, Solcom is really taking a back seat here. And Frost then is acting with this odd sort of logical conclusion that an absence of orders is the same as a directive, basically, that Frost can create his own directives. And really what Frost is discovering is intentionality here. And because Solcom doesn't want to comment one way or another, he doesn't want to affect maybe what he realizes is this difference in Frost than these other machines, uh, which is like intentionality, a sense of intentionality, Frost feels free to follow his own path. There's a, a lot of philosophical stuff going on in this section here. Zelezny is starting by pointing out the very tricky problem of objective measurement of really empirical uh, data. And because everything that humans measure or study includes the built-in idea, idea that the activity will somehow benefit us or give us a sense of purpose or meaning. It means that our tools are aids in our pursuits rather than objects that have their own perception or uh, initiative. Yes, Frost is dealing with the data problem from the next generation here. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, but one thing Zelazny has done that that I think is very purposeful and very important to what Zelazny is exploring in this story is the that he's removed the human community from the equation and is asking the reader to engage with the question of whether or not information or pure abstract knowledge or pure reason it would be enough to give, you know, say an alien or a super smart computer a sense of what it means to be human beyond all the stuff that we've put down in words. And words and objects are really all we get at this point. Can pure reason penetrate the symbolic network that we rely on, often unreflectively, to give us the kinds of essential experiences that we think of human? And and part of what Zelazny is doing is walking through uh, a kind of history of uh, British empiricism and the kinds of problems it ran into that that led to you know phenomenology or the study of actual just human 
experience and perception for the individual and in moving through the world. And this is what I think Zelazny is dealing with. It strikes to the core of uh, phenomenology. And it's interested in the quality of experience rather than whether or not things or even we exist to have experiences. This question is best described in a famous essay called What Is It Like to Be a Bat? Though much work has been done before and since this essay has come out. But this is kind of the pretty standard introduction to the question of, you know, consciousness, individual perception, and what it would even mean for us to describe what it's like to be something else, because we'd have to rely on a reference to our own human experiences. And this is the same problem in reverse, that these computers can get all this data and information, but they can't translate it into the actual meaning of perception and experience that humans might have. You know, in, in essence, this section is dealing with problems of knowledge and senses of knowledge. And in the discussion, we'll be talking about why we think Zelazny is engaging with this problem. But really, he's talking about, say, uh, a savvy, which is like a know-how, and a real sense of knowing that comes with uh, a fully embodied encounter with the world. I also want to point out here that a Shropshire lad by A.E. Hausman uh, provide, provided Zelazny with the title for this poem, or at least you know words in the poem did. This is a very long poem, uh, and it became popular really around the time of World War One, maybe a decade before World War One, uh, or as World War One is ramping up, because it deals with youth being enamored with war and glory and the death of said youths and how it impacts this village. Uh, we'll get a little more of this po poem later on in the story. I don't think as an illusion it influences the reading of the story one way or another, but it is where Zelazny got the title. Thematically, right, this poem, The Shropshire Lad, is probably the least important to the story, other than that it does go back to the whole setup of this story, which of course is that we blew ourselves up, right? That humanity destroyed itself, uh, though not the actual planet, or at least not completely the actual planet in a, a nuclear war. So, And so I am looking forward to thinking through that a little bit more in the discussion episode. But we've got more to do in this episode before we can get there. So next up is something of a montage scene as Frost scans 100 to 150 books per week for 100 years. So somewhere around 600,000 books. That pace, by the way, that's what PhD exams feel like. I mean, it's not really what it's like, but it's what it feels <laughs> like for sure. And these 600,000 books are books that Divcom has access to. And at first I had assumed that this was by design, right? That the computer had been housed with physical books by the humans who created all of this, who were preparing for this catastrophe. But a few paragraphs later, Mordell explains that these are books that Divcom has found and preserved. It might be a lie, but we don't ever find out any more about that. And in any case... This is not enough for Frost. So Mordell now brings video recordings and then physical artifacts, including a baseball and a rifle, which I love. And then that's it. Frost has now consumed every available remnant of human culture. And Mordell asks him if he admits that it's not enough. But Frost says that now he requires time to process all of this information. And he takes a long time to do this, but still, it isn't enough. But Frost remembers that Mordell once told him that he could take him on a tour of places that had been important to humans. And so, off they go. First stop is Northern California, Redwood Country. It's scenic and beautiful, of course, right? As anyone who's been there knows. But Frost doesn't sense any beauty. He doesn't feel anything. 
Nearby is the Crusher of Ores, a machine that is tens of thousands of years old, a machine that speaks and commands, is what we're told. Whenever Frost's robots come near here, the Crusher of Ores demands that they stop and listen to his tale. And he seems to be able to do this to, to Frost and Mordell as well. And, and so we are going to hear his story. And his story is this. He was built by Solcom as part of the effort to rebuild human civilization. But one day, in his duties as a wandering Crusher of Ores, he accidentally killed the last human who was living in a, a burrow. And because of this mistake, the Crusher of Ores is now forced to wander the earth with the bones of that last human and to tell his story to anyone he finds. From a world-building perspective, this is a really fascinating story. But it is largely here so that Zelazny can introduce the idea that the Crusher of Ores would have implicitly known if Frost had become a human. That the Crusher of Ores is designed to recognize who is and who is not a human and to obey any human commands. And of course, right, we have seen this idea before ourselves. This is in this is in Gene Wolfe's novella Tracking Song, where this is a pretty important plot and, and thematic element as well. And we've seen connections between these two writers before. And it's kind of how we got here in the first place. And this is the longest section of the story, by the way. And so we've still got a little more to do, but I'm going to try to summarize as succinctly as I can. They visit a few more beautiful places in the United States, including the Grand Canyon, Carlsbad Caverns, Niagara Falls, the Orchards of Ohio, that's where Zelazny is from, and the Hills of Virginia, which is someplace you and I have gone hiking together, Brandon. <laughs> but none of this does anything for Frost. So off they go now to what had been the very last refuge of humanity, high in the Andes. There's a slight problem with this plan, though, which is that this is in the Southern Hemisphere, where Frost has no authority and where he's not supposed to go. Through some conversational trickery, Mordell gets Frost to admit that he's never been explicitly ordered not to go to the Southern Hemisphere, and so it's all right to violate the implicit rule. I like Mordell, I have to say. I do too. And when they get there, they find a monument of a jag-edged half-globe with the inscription, Judgment Day is not a thing which can be put off. But Frost doesn't get any time to dwell on this or to look around, because now the beta machine contacts him to tell him to get out of the Southern Hemisphere. They quibble over the chain of command, with Frost saying that he only takes orders directly from Solcom, and with the beta machine saying that Solcom is ordering this right now, and that the beta machine is the vicar of Solcom in the Southern Hemisphere. But Frost wonders then why Solcom doesn't contact him directly, and so he doesn't go away, doesn't depart here. Instead, he takes a look around this last refuge of humanity, though still, he doesn't feel anything. There is a bit of an action sequence now in this story here that is mostly talking when some robot spiders appear to try to force Frost to leave. I was not expecting robot spiders. They're not really going to matter. Uh, but they do succeed in getting them to go away. And so then Solcom has some words for Frost. Solcom is mightily displeased that Frost didn't just do as he was told. But Frost protests that Solcom never told him. But Solcom's agent did. And besides, it should have been obvious that Frost visiting the Southern Hemisphere was not aiding Solcom's plan. But after this scolding, the beta machine contacts Frost to say that Frost's presence would have been welcome if Solcom had not ordered the beta machine to turn him away. So, all right, this is a very long section, but only one more thing to narrate here, then we'll take a little pause. When all this is done, Frost decides that he needs to make art in order to become like a human. He tries a few things, but he still doesn't feel anything. And Mordell deems that Frost's creations are clearly not art yeah mortel is a really great art critic we'll come to discover in this story uh <laughs> he does a lot of art criticism here and a lot of art theorizing in this section we see solcom still kind of 
primarily taking a back seat here because he won't communicate directly with Frost, but rather through intermediaries or the vicar of Solcom in the South, like <laughs> Beta Machine, as you said, Glenn. Uh, but he does end up scolding Frost for defying commands. He won't communicate to Frost and say, you know, don't do this or like, yeah, you know, this is wrong. Please, please return to the North. He waits until Frost screws up enough to scold him and and as everybody knows this is a great way to build relationships with people uh, <laughs> so you know he's basically saying like you should have inferred this you're a great logical machine i'm the best logic machine and the com- you can infer commands uh that do not need to be made explicit but really all solcom has to lean on in terms of logic is very strange because Solcom says that Frost has broken the traditions of order. And it's so weird to me that these computers are relying on traditions instead of just computing explicit logic for each other to follow. So I think we'll have to look at on some level, maybe not too much, and what what Zelazny is doing with this idea of tradition in this story. Because we saw a similar engagement with the topic in Keys to December, and Graveyard Heart is maybe about this question of culture or tradition on a big level what what the relationship is between tradition and culture right these machines are totally anthropomorphized here of course right the very fact that they're even giving orders to each other and and speaking that they're doing all of this in speech i mean this is you know not what my computer does when it's uh trying to you know download podcasts or you know visit a website right it's not not going to the podcast host and saying could i please have some of those podcasts to download yeah, exactly. Though I did recently read a book that that is exactly the function of the objects and like the magic system is really based on computer code and they talk to each other. Uh, that was called Foundry Side. I really enjoyed it once I got about 30 or 40 pages into it. Side recommendation. <laughs> but uh, I also want to point out the moment in this story where Beta says to Frost that if Solcom hadn't told her to make Frost leave... She wouldn't have. And Frost's response here is an attempt to imitate humanity. He recognized that Beta is making some kind of gesture of understanding or compassion uh, on his behalf. She didn't have to reach out to him. So he says, thank you. He thanks her for it. But Frost's thanking of Beta really comes from a place of referring to all the books he's read about acting like a person. And it's not clear at this point in the story that he's really expressing any genuine gratitude or would even know what that means. This section is also really caught up with art and art theory and art art criticism and also aesthetics, aesthetic theory. Earlier, while Frost and Wardell are touring this old museum in in the Andes, uh, Frost describes the paintings as nothing but shapes and pigments. This is a purely technical view. And once again, this reveals that Frost and these machines have no symbolic framework for engaging with meaning. Later on, he he tries to make art and he makes this really lifelike statue of an old woman who's bent over. Mordell tells him that's not art, that's imitation. Uh, you know, and I wonder now if Zelazny has read Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction and is kind of engaging <laughs> with that essay. And then uh, Frost makes a statue of himself, and both are purely accurate. They're not express. They're not expressive or expressions 
of a representation or an idea, their pure representation. Maybe Zelazny is asking what art is at this point, but the final piece of these two pieces that Frost made is this old woman bent over looking at this small cube and she's leaning over it. And I think this actually does have some symbolic or representational value, you know, maybe hinting at humankind's rule over the machines and humanity being represented as this kind of bent over old woman and the power that that has over, you know, these machines, though, neither Mordell nor Frost have the power to understand this subjective or symbolic interpretation of this final kind of sculpture garden that Frost has started. Yeah, it's not really clear what makes Mordell any better at understanding what art is than Frost, though Mordell is taking on the role here in this story of someone who knows things, right, and is is somehow sort of teaching Frost while also testing him and, of course, you know, trying to steal his soul, basically, while he's doing this. But it's clear that Mordell has no idea what art actually is either, and he's kind of just baiting Frost here. I mean, Mordell's whole job here from Divcom is to deny any sort of humanity or any sort of personhood to Frost for as long as he can, right, in order to claim that they've won the bet. Right, exactly. And on a logic level, what he's saying is true. I mean, paintings are nothing more than brushstrokes, arranged color, uh, and pigments on canvas. But there's more to it than that, as we all know when we experience a work of art. I think it's also important to point out that the first thing that... Frost does is go in search of the sublime or have some experience of awe in the beauty of nature. And this is an idea that, while maybe is not invented by Romanticism, is certainly described and explored to its like logical end in Romanticism. The idea of the sublime and awe and having these experiences in nature. And that is what Frost first goes looking after. So we've gone from sort of British empiricism uh, of objective measurements and kind of standing outside of humanity to create an objective picture of the world through the scientific method, through measuring machines, through all, all this sorts of stuff. And we've now moved into romanticism, which is maybe one of the first major steps in the West to talk about the common experiences and emotions of humans and what they have when they experience kind of the grandeur of nature, when they get outside the city and the industrializing world and look at not the things that man has made, but in in this kind of uh, cosmology, what God has made and kind of allow themselves to be overwhelmed by the feelings of that. Uh, of of beauty of the sublime and to experience awe, you know, to be full of awe, to experience something as awful. Uh, and Frankenstein is, of course, the great novel that plays with these ideas in in maybe the best way. But one other thing we see in this section is is maybe that Beta has some kind of intuition that Frost does not have, and and it's really this gesture that she makes toward him indicates a desire to communicate with one of her kind, but it's also kindness, which is, is really out of place. And structurally, I think we're set up for Beta's 
kind of human move towards Frost because of Ore Crusher's need to tell stories and communicate his tale with other robots. And I wonder if Ore Crusher's command of other robots may be due to the fact that he has the bones of a human within him. In any event, there's just a lot going on here. Yeah, I'm glad you're emphasizing the beta machine's behavior here, because I think that's one of the most fascinating aspects of this story. I'm looking forward to digging into that. We're going to get more of it, of course. But the next section has Frost taking up art again. This time, it's painting. He tries to vary the landscape that he's painting by making the colors just utterly ridiculous. But it still isn't clear, either to Frost or Mordell, if this is art. Because art is non-logical, in that many of the features of a finished work of art were hidden to the artist even during its creation and frost cannot deal with this so he sends mordell away again while he's going to do some more pondering here and it's during this time that the beta machine contacts frost again and, and wants to know why frost visited the last refuge of humanity in the first place of course it was because he wanted to see it but why the beta machine asks because he wanted to know about humanity but why because i'm interested in humanity but why? Because I want to comprehend humanity. And you get the picture here, right? The beta machine is a two-year-old whose probing questions are going to help Frost realize that he doesn't know why he's trying to comprehend humanity, but we aren't there just yet. The beta machine decides to stop asking questions and offers to help Frost with the data processing load, but Frost really just wants to do this himself. And when he explains this, he says that he is sorry, which is something that the beta machine can't understand. And so Frost ends up sending the beta machine the dictionary as well as some other books uh, to read, right, instead of explaining the concept to her. And when Mordell returns to follow up on the art, Frost indicates that he's given up on that. And now what he's doing is constructing a facility in South Carolina for some new purpose, which we will find out about in the next section. But one of the things that Zelazny does here is to remind us, the, the readers, that Solcom and Divcom are engaged in an open war, that they destroy each other's creations and spend a lot of effort and energy on that. It's a big part of this section. The Beta Machine, which is really going by just Beta now to Frost, uh, Beta wants to know more about humanity, and so Frost sends even more books. But Beta still also wants to know what Frost is up to. And here, he finally says what's really been going on. He wants to become a human. And the thing is, he doesn't just mean person. He means homo sapiens. And he intends to transfer his mind, his persona, into a human body. You see, what he's constructed in South Carolina is a laboratory. And what he's been doing there is growing human bodies from living cells that he's found frozen in the Arctic ice. Uh, and this is really raising the stakes that we need to get in the final act, which is where we are going next. Yes, I mean, it seems as though Frost has finally found a way to satisfy the terms of the bargain for himself he's already built maybe eyes and ears for himself maybe a nose or like rudimentary sensory organs in order to be able to choose to limit his perceptual uh, contact with the world but these things do not make a uh, machine a man and if that's the case then he'll have to find some way to inhabit the whole system of perceptions that is the human body in order to become a man these are all ideas that you come across in, you know, uh, philosophy of mind primarily. And I think Zelazny is doing a pretty good job of exploring them. But what Frost needs is new knowledge in the form of genuine experience because he's only been able to encounter the world as being too close to the objects that he studies 
you know, in the world, snowflakes, whatever, cells, books, they're all just objects to him. And so he hasn't been able to create that symbolic framework, that distance and series of distances from objects that humans are being able to generate through emotion or uh, history or whatever's going on in the mind of a person, uh, you know, who knows. But I, I want to return again to this other treatise on art that Selazny has given us. You know, you hinted at this notion that there is this sense of the expression of the unknown in the creation of art. And I want to point this out here. I want to read what Mordell says real quick, uh, because it relates to this relationship between the tool and the maker that we saw earlier where Solkheim was talking about logic. Mordell says that the artist was often unaware of the many features and effects which would be contained within the finished product. Uh, this line is important because on one level it means that there, none of the robots or computers can really evaluate art. But Zelazny is talking about the invention of the unconscious here, and again, about the notion of this shared network of symbols that people use unthinkingly to communicate and exist within community together. But it also suggests that humans were maybe in the same place of order with relationship to art that the robots are and computers are with relationship to logic, that people are on some level the tool of art that art needs to be made and needs to be expressed. And then it transcends the person who made that expression. Uh, it's a really interesting idea. It's a very romantic idea and, and kind of neoclassical, uh, this idea of muses and being the tools of uh, muses and art coming from outside of us. Uh, but again, it's, it's also about the expression of the unconscious of letting your uh, unthought thoughts or unthought uh, images kind of be put into paper to lose yourself in time and in the act of creation. And this idea also includes this notion of significance, especially this idea of uh, engaging in shared networks of symbols. You know, what is worthy of artistic expression? This idea is brought up just a page before uh, this line from Mordell, and it's expressing some of the same ideas. Humans experience the world and try to relate to one another in actually baffling ways if you sit down and think about it. And this is really what philosophers do in some sense. And aesthetics is a branch of philosophy. So is philosophy of language and logic. Uh, and, and they sit, philosophers think about ways to explain things that seem so obvious as to have flown under the radar of explanation. And of course, this is very difficult, though it is occasionally fruitful, I'll say. And I think Zelazny's <laughs> doing a great job of dealing with these difficult themes, even philosophy of language. I mean, we get this with the difficulty of explaining what sorry means to Beta. Frost apologizes to Beta when she expresses a desire to help him um, because Frost wants to discover becoming human alone, which I think is another mistake in this whole enterprise. So Beta asks what sorry is, and Frost says that it is a figure of speech indicating that I am kindly disposed toward you, that I bear you no animosity, that I appreciate your offer. And certainly that's one sense of the word, but it's a culturally learned sense of the word. A lot of food for thought here about how language is a complex system of symbols as well. There's just one more thing I want to say before we move on here, which is that the 
process of rebuilding the earth by making structures that man could use or inhabit. You know, in in this process, there's a kind of shadow war going on. And Glenn, you pointed this out uh, as well in the background of this story. And it is a big part of the story, but it really only takes up a few sentences on the page. And I just want to emphasize that Solcom and Divcom build and destroy one another's cities or bridges or whatever because they're in conflict with one another. And I find there's a real element of the absurd to this. Uh, but Z- Zelazny is even building towards a resolution between these two supercomputers for the end of the story. Yeah, I actually wish that there had been more of that in this story, though, as we've said several times already, this is really largely written as a, a stage play. And so there's not a whole lot of, of, of space and it would be maybe a little stylistically and it would be maybe a little stylistically jarring if we had a lot of scenes of this of the rebuilding and of the conflict around it going on. But it is an absurd notion. This is uh, the far future. Humanity has destroyed itself in a nuclear war. And yet all these robots, these computerized robots that humans made are rebuilding civilization, rebuilding the civilization of humanity but there's no one left. There's no one to move into it, right? That these machines were clearly designed to repair and to rebuild for the remnants, for the survivors. But there are no survivors, yet they're going about this business anyway. I mean, there's a real darkness to this setup here. I mean, this this is a real like Twilight Zone feel to it again. But all right, we are in the final act now. We're ready to bring this story home. It is no easy task growing human bodies, and so it takes Frost even 50 years to to work on just the nervous system. Mordell visits now, and Frost shows off his work, and this part of the story has a real mad scientist feel to it. Uh, Frost refers to this as his man factory, and he's creating them blank-brained so he can imprint himself onto the bodies he's growing, for which he has already created a transmitter. And just as he's about to do it, Beta calls to wish him luck. And Frost realizes that both Solcom and Divcom must also know that he's trying to become a person, but this is not going to stop him. But at the same time, both Divcom and Solcom have arrayed robot forces around the lab. Uh, Divcom, because he anticipates failure and he wants to make sure that Frost is going to honor their original bargain, that Frost will serve him if he fails. And Solcom doesn't want Frost to proceed. He says that this is against the plan. He says that Frost is fallen and he casts him out from the rebuilding. Uh, Rebuilding here, again, a proper noun. But Frost wonders if Solcom even knows what the plan is for. If Solcom has ever considered why he's rebuilding civilization, if there aren't any people. But none of this really matters because there is nothing that Solcom can do to stop him now because he is already installing himself into a human body and Solcom cannot kill a human. And now we come to it. Frost moves his arms and legs. He opens his eyes and tries to move, but he doesn't know what he's doing. He falls off the table, he gurgles, he screams, and then he cries. He sees Mordell, who is trying to help him, who's asking for orders, and he tries to speak. He he does speak, but all he says is, I fear. And then the human body is blank again, as if it's in a coma. Uh, Frost has transmitted his mind back into his machine body. And now Divcom and Solcom are are present here in this scene. Frost says, it cannot be done. It is too much. And so from Divcom's perspective, Frost has failed and he's lost the bet. But Solcom says, hang on. And it turns out that Solcom and Divcom have had some kind of bet going on as well. Though I think that we have 
seen this between the lines for quite some time now. And so Solcom questions Frost about his experience. And Frost explains that it was just too much light, too much noise, too many odors. Nothing was measurable. It was all just jumbled data and imprecise perception. It simply cannot be done, and nothing matters. Everything he's ever done has been for nothing. But of course, this is what it means to be human. These sensations, but also the fear that he felt, and also this despair that he's feeling right now. Divcom does not want to admit that Frost has now experienced what it is to be a human, that he's become a human, really. But Mordell and the other robots sense it implicitly, and they regard Frost as the boss now, because he's a human. And if he is a human, then he needs to be put back into his human body so that he can be protected. But Frost definitely does not want that. In fact, he commands them not to transfer him back into the human body against his will. And this creates a kind of Kirkian trap for the robots, uh, for, for Beta and Divcom and Solcom and Mordell, because they have two fundamental orders. One, protect human life, and two, do whatever humans say. But unlike what happens in Star Trek, the original series, this does not make any robots blow up or short circuit and smoke (laughs) or anything like that. And in the end, they decide to fulfill this first commandment. And when Frost asks Mordell if he hasn't any pity, Mordell simply says, no, I'm not a person. I only know measurement and duty. And that's the end of the action. Frost has achieved humanity. But we have a coda now. One last page to this story. Six months later, Frost has learned to walk and talk and eat and what to do with senses and emotions. Solcom and Divcom want to know which of them is right, right? Which of them has the correct plan for rebuilding? The answer is that they're both right and both wrong, and only a human can appreciate that. And now Frost has a new commandment for them. Continue rebuilding, but cease destroying each other's work. And he gives Solcom the north and Divcom the south. And now we really come to the end. It's time for Frost to give Beta a body, too, so they can be a new Adam and Eve together. And that's the end of the story. It ends with a new beginning. Right. A happy ending, I suppose. You know, all disorder has been set back to the proper order. Uh, I really do like the logic trap that Frost sets for Solcom. When he asks Solcom why he's even rebuilding and maintaining the Earth, again, this is with structures designed for human activity, when there are no people to experience it. This is another thing, another philosophical problem we'll we'll try to pick up in the discussion as well. I don't have too much else to say here at the end of the tale, other than I like the way it wraps up, but we'll have a lot to talk about in the discussion episode. Yeah, I'm really excited to get to the discussion episode, so let's do that. I think that is going to do it here for this recap episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other shows at claytemplemedia.com. And we will be back in just a few days with that discussion episode, a discussion of For a Breath, I, Terry. But until then... We greet you and say farewell.